the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And we are so glad you've tuned in today. I want to say at the beginning here a special thanks from uh, the OnScript co-hosting team to Ed Hatkey for producing the show, to Rebecca Terhune for help with marketing and media, and to James Steinbach for help with the website and all the back-end stuff. So uh, we have a fantastic team, and we couldn't do it without you, so thanks so much. And to those of you who listen and support the show either by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening or uh, support us financially, we're extremely grateful to you as well. Um, it, you can help us out if you would like to spread the word about OnScript uh, through various means. For instance, if any of you are good with, with computer programming and have access to an animal shelter or to a dog breeder or something like that where they implant the microchips on dogs to keep track of them and are able to change the names of the dogs to OnScript.study, that's one way that as people lose their pets, and they will, they'll, they'll lose their pets, uh, they can um, and and they scan uh, for their dog. You know, if someone finds a dog, they'll scan it and they'll see onscript.study. And they should have a dog collar on, so it should still have the name on it, so that's not lost. So uh, that's just one way you can you can help out, uh, get the get the word out in through um, means that are are less conventional. And that's the that's the way we we try to do things at Onscript. Uh, we have a very special episode. Uh, this time. This was a recording of a, a live socially distanced event that we had at Neshota House Theological Seminary this summer. And we want to say a special thanks to Neshota for uh, hosting the event. And although it was not a normal summer event, uh, we still were able to gather um, in an open air tent environment and a few of us were able to come together. So that was very nice and special thanks to Janine Brown for making the trip uh, out to Neshota from Minnesota to join us for that. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey folks, good evening. I asked uh, Dr. Lynch, who will be um, the master of ceremonies tonight for the podcast recording, if I could have the uh, honor of introducing our guest, Dr. Janine Brown. And the reason I wanted to do the introduction tonight is because uh, Janine Brown and I go back 40 years, Uh, which is to say we met as undergraduates in 1980. Um, So I am a year older, if that helps at all. Does that help, Janine? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) And we went to college together we were both involved as student leaders in the same InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Um, we were in the same music department. And in fact, Janine was my piano accompanist through a lot of that time. And so anyway, I would describe my life as 40 years of trying to catch up with Janine Brown. And um, I, I've done, I, I got the same degree. Um, I got a job in the same field. Um, she had a grandson in December. I had a grandson two weeks later, and I'm just 10 books behind. 
other than that, it's going pretty well. <laughs> I have a lot of stories about Janine. I won't tell them because we have other things to do tonight. I will tell you this one. Uh, Janine had something of a reputation for being frugal. <laughs> and one evidence of her fr frugality was when she started her Masters of Divinity at seminary, she was like, I don't need to pay anybody to teach me Greek. So she taught herself. And before she finished her MDiv, she was teaching Greek for the seminary, which gives you a little idea of the intelligence and discipline and the kind of person that we're talking about here. <laughs> and she met her husband in her Greek class. So think about that, dating your Greek teacher. All right, so anyway, that's, uh, that's the kind of person that's here. <laughs> yeah, stop. Okay. Neshota House folks will know Janine Brown from a couple of things. One of them is if you are uh, in our hybrid distance or residential program, you have read her book or will, Scripture as Communication in our Biblical Interpretation class, which uh, came out in 2007, and we've been using it for over 10 years ever since. It's a really fine book. Uh, Janine's books are many. She has uh, actually two commentaries on Matthew, um, one in the Teach the Text and one in the Two Horizons series. Um, she's slated for commentaries in, on Philippians in the Tyndale Commentary series, if you know that one and a commentary on 1 Peter in the uh, New International Commentary on the New Testament. The other way that uh, Neshota House students might know uh, Dr. Brown is through the Dictionary of Jesus in the Gospel, second edition, uh, for which she was one of the three editors, which is uh, a, a big deal. Anyway, um, a really fine scholar, wonderful person, um, a very young grandmother, <laughs> and she's here uh, tonight to talk to Matt Lynch about her new book, The Gospels as Stories, uh, which I have on my desk. I've read the introduction. It's really a great introduction. <laughs> I have a long way to go. Uh, but anyway, it looks like a fantastic book. It, it uh, is a culmination of, uh, of Janine's work in the Gospels and especially narrative approaches to the Gospels. So she's just the right person to write that kind of a book. And I'm going to turn it over to Matt Lynch and on script for taking it from here. Thank you for being here, Janine. So glad to be with y'all. Okay, well, welcome everyone to a live, uh, an, our fourth annual uh, live recording of the OnScript podcast at Neshota House uh, Theological Seminary. And uh, I, I want to I announce here at the beginning that we have a new tagline for OnScript uh, coined by our very own Rebecca Terhune. And uh, OnScript is here keeping you off Netflix one episode at a time. <laughs> so thanks, Rebecca, for that, for that tagline. Um, so I just want to welcome all OnScript superfans to a socially distanced live event here. Um, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be back here. It's always fun to do to be able to to get together in person uh, with people who listen to OnScript and uh, some who don't uh, for whatever reason. Um, and thanks so much to uh, Nishoda for your willingness to host this event, uh, which is always fun, and especially to Dr. Janine Brown for coming this evening. 
Um, even though this isn't quite our normal format being so spread apart here, it is nice to, to be together. So um, I'm going to go over some intro welcome stuff again. This will, will touch on some of the points that, that Gar mentioned, but uh, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Brown here. Uh, Dr. Brown is professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary, and Janine is the author of Scripture as Communication, Becoming Whole and Holy, and uh, two commentaries on Matthew in the Teach the Text series um, and in the New Horizon, Two, uh, two Horizons series. She's also co-edited the second edition of uh, Jesus and the Gospels. Uh, she's a co-author of Relational Integration of Psychology and Christian Theology. How about that? And the book under discussion today, The Gospels as Stories, a Narrative Approach to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, which was just released last month, I think. So, Janine, welcome to OnScript. So good to be here. Thank you. Uh, is this your first time at Neshota House? It is. We got here quite well with Google Maps, and it's just beautiful. We, my daughter and I, uh, Libby is here with me, and we took a walk this afternoon. Beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah, I, I always, I, I think the trees here are pretty amazing. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, and and the whole campus is beautiful. Um, now, just to start out, you're you're you've been friends with with Gar uh, for for quite a while now, uh, the president and provost of Neshota. Now, would you describe that friendship as challenging or taxing? A challenging, B taxing, C delightful, D all of the above. I, no, we, it's 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 been a wonderful. Really, forty years is that really true? And Don, mm, wow. Well, um, well, that's good to hear. Uh, I, it, it's not always easy being friends with people, but it's you know if you stick if you stick with it long term, uh, it, you know sometimes it, it begins to pay off after a while. So I do hope that for you. Those long term benefits. I'll I'll look for those in the future. Yeah. So um, now you. Uh, ha- It'd be interesting to hear how you got into the study of the Bible. What, what, was, what was your pathway into biblical studies? Were there any kind of key moments that, that defined your, you know, your decision to study the Bible formally, academically? Absolutely. Um, so I'll first give the disclaimer. I grew up in a context, a church context, lovely um, Christian context, but women could do only three things. I knew this intuitively. I don't think anybody ever said, here are the number, the three things you can do. You can be a Sunday school teacher, a choir director, or a missionary. My daughter can tell you I like to stay home. The mission kind of thing wasn't exactly my, uh, I don't have an adventurous spirit that way. Um, I have directed a choir in a church, little fourth and fifth graders, one of the worst experiences of my entire life. Just sort of ticking that box. So at seventh grade, I told my Sunday school class when the teacher said, what would you like to be when you grow up? I said, a Sunday school teacher. And I was laughed out of the room, not literally, but of course, metaphorically. And, um, but I hung in there and, and hung on to that. And in, when I was in 10th grade, I taught a Bible study for fourth and fifth graders at camp. You know, I was the camp counselor. And I remember pouring over this handout on 1 John. It was purple. Uh, and I remember that I can see the questions in my mind's eye. And I had written all the way down in those little blanks for questions and all the way up the side and around the side. On the back, I had Strong's Concordance out. I didn't know what to do with Greek words, but I was sure that there was something there for me. So, Pulling out the heavyweights. Yeah, and so this was 10th grade. So um, when people say, 
you know, how did you experience God's call? I say, well, God kind of pushed me from behind into all of this. And part of it was that deep love for scripture and for studying it. And for, I mean, when the, when the fourth and fifth graders ran out of that chapel, there was about 10 of them and they ran out for free time. And I think they were really glad to get out of my class. <laughs> I just, I remember sitting there in this glow. I was just basking in this place of, I love doing that. So I think for me, it was a slow recognition over time. University Christian Fellowship helped me to hone some teaching skills and I had to kind of really work through some of the issues of women in teaching and ministry in that context and um, went off to seminary and I guess the rest is history. Yeah, fantastic. Now you're you're coming to us today from Minneapolis, and and I was just curious if um, you could talk about uh, your experience recently, church responses to you know kind of in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. What what have been the conversations on the ground there? Absolutely. Um, I I speak from a place of privilege on this topic. Uh, we live in St. Paul, right across the river from Minneapolis, so we heard the helicopters overhead. Um, we saw some burnt out buildings on our side of the river. Um, my daughter lives in Minneapolis. So we, we've kind of seen the after, aftermath, the physical aftermath. Um, I think for the, the things that need to change, I, I really want to hear from communities of color, as I'm sure many of us do. Um, and I, uh, did some um, checking in with uh, some of our church leaders, uh, some of our alum who are leading churches in the cities uh, and um, I'm really encouraged by what they're doing in the midst of this. I know the communities of color broadly are are um, acting um, to enact change. Um, one of our alum is a pastor of Sanctuary Covenant Church, and they're doing peace barbecues where they bring people together, socially distant kind of way, and, and distribute food in their neck of the woods, uh, which is north... Um, North Minneapolis area. Uh, one of um, my favorite classes out there this summer online through Mill City Church uh, is, is an introduction to whiteness class. So I, I see churches and leaders kind of pressing into figuring out how do we respond in ways that are long-term, that are systemic, and that recognize um, the deep pain that has been part of communities of color, not just in Minneapolis, but of course across our nation. So um, I don't at all pretend to be an expert on these issues, um, but I have been encouraged by some of the long-term looking uh, and um, looking at self as well as looking at systems. Yeah, good. Um, now, you're an uh, accomplished biblical scholar, but you also have a keen interest in collaborative work with colleagues in uh, systematic theology, psychology, um, social sciences. You, you seem to have a, a real interdisciplinary uh, capacity. So, what are the, some of the conversations happening in those areas right now that that we might not be familiar with? How, what does that collaboration look like, and and what what have you been part of? My interest in integration, I think, really was um, guided and um, enlivened uh, in the early two thousands at Bethel Seminary. Uh, there was a strong push by our provost to do interdisciplinary conversation. And none of us knew what that meant or looked like exactly, especially in a very siloed um, academy. And seminaries had that same kind of siloing of various um, disciplines. 
Um, but he gave us space to do that. And I was actually, one of my early jobs at Bethel in terms of faculty role was um, faculty development chair. And I thought these sound like really fun conversations, so we're just gonna hold a lot of them. Uh, and we figured out some things along the way about how to do that kind of conversation where we actually sit face to face. I don't try to learn your field or borrow from your field until I've just sat with you for a while and heard what you have to say. One of the things we learned was that um, it's helpful to share from strengths. So uh, if I'm doing my work you know, in the Gospels and I just share about something I'm excited about, it's very likely somebody in a field of maybe psychology, we had a marriage and family, we do still have a marriage and family therapy program, or theology might say, hey, that sounds like a place where we could have some interesting conversation. So learning to share from a place of strength uh, and then and receive that rather than kind of the maybe the more in, uh, intuitive way in our field has been to say, I'm going to just go learn a little bit more about that. And if I can do some psychology and bring it into my biblical studies, uh, and, and that's not a bad thing to do. Um, but we found that sometimes you could end up doing a bit of cherry picking, you know, in other words, if I'm doing psychology in my biblical studies and the psychologists in the room are going like, shuddering, you know, then you know, you've gone past, you've transgressed a line. And how do you know if you've transgressed that line? You don't, it's unless you're an expert in the field. So um, we just found that checking our work with one another, if we're going to do that kind of work, I had a psychologist who came to me, brilliant man who, with whom I wrote the book, psychology and Christian theology, relational integration of Steve Sandage. Um, he came to my door one day. I said, would you look at this work on forgiveness from Matthew 18? I'm like, sure. Um, and you know, that the humility of coming to someone and saying, will you look at my work when he was publishing far more than I was at that point. Uh, and he's been a wonderful colleague to work with because he doesn't um, he doesn't, he's not territorial. He really wants to pursue knowledge. And some of the interesting conversations, um, one of the things he works on regularly are um, psychology of the virtues. So think, he has a humility project right now. There's a lot of funding now for thinking about various virtues. So humility, I threw an, an email to him the other day on Philippians and anxiety. Paul says, don't be anxious. And yet in chapter two, at the very end of the chapter, he expresses lovely relational anxiety about Epaphroditus, Philippian church himself. And this lovely, so I floated the language of relational anxiety to Steve to see what he would say. And he gave me a whole chapter in a book to read, right? So I have some work to do, but there's this kind of amazing synergy and trust when you get to know somebody and he knows he can check with me and we know we can do common projects. Um, and that's just been delightful because I'm no psychologist and you don't want me for a therapist. So to, but to, to collaborate with somebody who does those things so well, um, he's just one example. Um, so how, what would you say is a role of, so uh, a lot of people here and a lot of our listeners are interested in keeping up with the field of biblical studies, but their, their primary interests are in the church. And so what would you say is the, the role of academic study of the Bible for the church? And my experience in that conversation, um, uh, it's been, uh, on one hand, I've had great relationships with pastors and teachers, and they'll bring me in to teach a class in their church, and, and I enjoy being a part of their congregation or 
you know, conversations. Um, and on the other hand, there's this um, ongoing tension between academy and church that's just been documented and people have felt in the sense of, um, do you have to go get a PhD to really be able to read the Bible? Um, and on the other hand, are we really doing that in the church? You know, I mean, sort of academics looking in with a microscope or with, you know, binoculars and saying, should we really be doing that? Um, I think one of the really important skills that we um, can bring to this conversation is the, the skill of listening well um, and, and also acknowledging strengths. I mean, I, I am just so impressed by the pastors and teachers and leaders in the church who are doing work on the ground that I could never do, that I'm not gifted to do. Um, and so hearing what their, not just their questions for me, but their input to me, their strengths, their, um, the way they see ministry. Um, and I think for uh, those in the academy to share with confidence what they know um, and not hide it under a bushel, to use a Mathean phrase. So just, I mean, this, this sense of being more honest with where we both have something to share with one another. And um, I'd love to see that conversation be really even more productive um, than I think it's becoming more productive as, as I see the last, what, 30 years or so of scholarship. Sure. So uh, just turning to your book, The Gospels as Stories, I, you say near the beginning of your book that, that humans interpret and make sense of reality through stories. And, um, and this seems like the kind of thing that's often said, but not, not necessarily uh, understood. So you, you've explored that dynamic from the, ang the perspective of not only literary and biblical studies, but theology and sociology. So how, how exactly does it work that we make sense of reality through stories? What, how, what does that mean? Um, according to narrative psychologists and others, and you know, we're wired for story, meaning that we, we take what could be just understood as random sequences in our life and we make meaning out of them. We string them together with some sort of story arc. Um, we don't all do that in every moment, but uh, there is a sense of um, telling our life story, the fact that we can say that, or um, a doctor will take a family history. Uh, those, those are representations of, again, what could be seen as just e different events and saying, no, there's a continuity here. Um, what I think is interesting from narrative, and, you know, and so then you have something called narrative psychology, you have something called narrative theology, you have narrative criticism or narrative analysis, which I press into in the book and kind of explore um, with my readers. Um, so it seems like all sorts of fields are really interested in this topic. Um, it's kind of the narrative turn in the postmodernist day. Um, one thing that narrative psychologists say uh, is that there's strength to kind of telling your story in a um, coherent but yet complex way, allowing for the complexity and the tensions of life. Um, there's something that can be unhelpful to you, harmful, in fact, if you tell your story too, co too coherently. Or, I mean, you can think, of course, telling your story in a really disintegrative way, you know, kind of nothing connecting. You can hear how that could be really harmful toward understanding even meaning and purpose. But two coherent narratives, um, Adler, I think, talks about, uh, kind of intriguing for thinking about how we look at scripture. Do we allow for the um, 
do we allow for the tensions and the complexities of narrative to really come out? Or do we have a quick answer to tie it all up in a bow in the end? Do the narrative writers in the Bible really do that? Or do they leave that complexity um, kind of there in terms of who people are and what God is doing? Um, so I find narrative across those different disciplines really helpful for thinking about what we're seeing in the Gospels. Yeah, and, and it strikes me too, um, in our Old Testament class this week, we were talking about um, the narrative structure of the Bible, but also how, you know, right at the beginning, it starts out with two creation stories. So you, you have right from the get-go a, a complex way of telling a story that that almost immediately resists a single narrative or, or one one kind of uh, coherent story that doesn't allow for kind of two perspectives right off the bat. And of course, in the Gospels, you have the same thing. Yeah, if a simplistic way of understanding story, uh, it seems as both harmful for us as people and also potentially for our reading. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you mentioned narrative criticism or narrative analysis, which which is what you're talking about uh, for a great deal of your book. What um, What are some examples of how narrative criticism has opened up the Gospels for you? Reading the story from beginning to end, really truly doing that. Um, even if, if I come to a, a middle part of the story saying what has come before. You know, I realize we can't always read 28 chapters of Matthew in one sitting if we want to understand a part of Matthew. Yet that, that question of how does this all hang together has been such a helpful lens for me. Um, uh, one way it helped, one, one thing about story is that stories, um, those who write stories are communicating often very implicitly. Uh, what's going on, not explicitly. Um, so um, narrative theology uh, is is not so much about capturing one-liners from the Gospels. Um, there are some great one-liners, so I mean, I'm not dissing one-liners, but um, if we only thought of th um, theology sort of propositionally, mm -hmm. and then we got to the Gospels, we'd lose things or we'd miss things like Matthew's um, wisdom Christology. Matthew never says Jesus is wisdom. And yet in chapter 11, he implies very clearly, I think, that Jesus is wisdom. In chapter 11, verse 2 and 19, there's a nice little inclusio or bookend um, that has, talks about the deeds of the Messiah. Um, John the Baptist heard about the deeds of the Messiah. And then in, in 19, um, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, erga in both cases. So Jesus' deeds and wisdom deeds seem to be the same thing for Matthew in that section of text. And then at the end of chapter 11, he, Jesus calls out, Matthew has Jesus calling out, all come to me, all you who are weary, um, burdened down, I will give you rest. This sounds like wisdom from Proverbs 9, um, from the book of wisdom in the Jewish tradition. So we have Jesus taking on the voice of the persona of wisdom to say, come, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. This is all language kind of dripping um, with that wisdom resonance from the Old Testament and from Jewish literature. So we'd miss that if we only thought of narrative um, as the giver of great one-liners. Yeah, yeah. Now with... Um with having, you know, I guess one of the key emphases of a narrative approach to the Gospels is allowing each Gospel its own voice. And and when you move from that approach to theology, now, the 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 Jesus we worship is one Jesus. So, ha what's the relationship between 
the maintaining those four angles and and wanting to also, in some sense, theologically, it, it's hard to resist creating a composite. You know, the the drive to create a composite. So how how does that? How do you see those two in relation? Well, we, we trust we are in relationship with a single Jesus, not four Jesuses. I think you're trying to say this is not a question to ask a Matthean scholar though it's like I I even because I talk about the Matthean Jesus right so in my book with Kyle Roberts um, the Matthew commentary in the beginning as we kind of talk about our method a little bit a little bit and how we differed in our methods theologian biblical scholar um, I talk about a situation in class we were teaching a course called Matthew for theology to kind of get ourselves started writing this thing and um, one of the students said but Jesus does this and I said I didn't even breathe. I just said, not in Matthew, he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, I found it sounded like a scolding parent. That's just really scary. But it was like, I, it was really important that we understand we are studying Matthew for theology. Oh, no, Matthew doesn't. No, Matthew doesn't do that. So I'm a really bad person to ask about this because I, I, I still am working this out in my own spiritual formation. So I'll just say I need a, um, I do have a spiritual director, uh, but I, I, I need help with this myself because I, 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 I so appreciate the Johannine portrait. Um, and, and so maybe I'm a little bit disintegrated in that I go to the portrait that I, you know, Jesus for me today, I'm really resonating with the Johannine Jesus. I don't know. Maybe I'm not you need quite a sure I have a great answer. Four day yes. regimen where you there rotate you go, through there that. You go, yeah. No, I mean, I think in my own experience, Jesus is more than and beyond all of those four. Um, but I, I try to. Um, discipline myself to listen to those portraits to understand my relationship with Christ. So, but I still, this it's like, I'm not the person to ask. Any person in this room will give a better answer for how to think coherently about Jesus than I can do at this point. Yeah. So I'm sure you get this question a lot. You know, the, the part of the point of understanding narrative is that it's selective. You know, the writer chooses to include or exclude certain things. So, um, Given the Gospels and Jesus' own emphasis on children, why why do you think we don't get a lot of his early life to kind of even just sort of pave the way for his ministry or something? Uh, narrative criticism is also very interested in what are these things we read? What are the Gospels in terms of the genre? And Richard Burridge's work is really important to me and to, to so many others, um, emphasizing that they fit really quite well, not fully, of course, um, the category of Greco-Roman uh, bioi or biographies. And in the first century world or in that time, um, those biographies, those bioi, are not um, really interested in the early life of their, whether it's like a general or a philosopher, or, um, in this case, Jesus. Uh, but we, we have a lot of biographies out there, and they just don't spend much time on the, the early years. They get pretty quickly into the public ministry, public debut, and spend time there. And then the death of the figure gets quite a bit of time as well. So they do fit really nicely in those sort of formalistic ways. Um, the 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 Greek the Greco-Roman category. Um, it is important, and I think Wright and N.T. Wright and others mentioned this that the Jewish cast to the Gospels needs to be reckoned with as well. We don't we just don't read them just as Greek texts. Um, we hear that Jewish influence, especially in this in the use of the Old Testament. But um, we wouldn't expect to if we were thinking in the genre of the first century world. Um, 
but it is then interesting to say, so why does, why does Ma- what does Matthew do and what does Luke do, you know, who the two who give us the infancy narratives, and how are, they, how are they different narratively? You know, John the Baptist, Jesus, alternating in the beginning of Luke, way to show a comparison, right? John, really good guy. Jesus, like far above, right? I mean, the comparison is the point. He doesn't say John, really good guy. But you know what I mean? There's this comparison back and forth. In, in Matthew, um, the infancy narrative, first of all, is to say Joseph adopts Jesus because that whole genealogy is not going to help us if Joseph doesn't adopt him to get to it. Uh, and then in chapter two, Jesus is, um, is, the, is vulnerable. Read chapter two. Jesus has no active Active, there are no verbs in the active voice attached to Jesus. He's not the subject of any of them. He is at the mercy of all that's going on, and, and King Herod's out to get him. You know, so there's this great conflict narrative, and God protects through dreams, through the the star, through magi, through, you know, just um, the the angel that speaks, and then the Joseph, and it's it's a powerful story of God's protection of this one. Um, of his son, um, and so the Israelite Christology there, as well as um, the protection theme is powerful. So narratively, you can hear those themes come up even in that little bit of background we get. So in the Greco-Roman biographies, were um, was the infancy part of this, those biographies, or was that even glossed over and just... It, yeah, it's a, just very little on their early life prior to when they be, when, you know, when a general becomes a general. Or, so that's a point of difference then, is is the the time that Matthew and Luke spend on. Yeah, and they don't give much time though to it. I mean, so there can be some attention to preparation. We see that, but yeah, it fits sort of the general sense of how much weight to those various areas. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you, you talk about uh, different literary techniques in the book, uh, which you helpfully define and discuss. I won't go through all those here, like foreshadowing and flashback and and that um, sort of thing. Um, You had a really good example um, on page uh, 60 of women being written into the Gospels, or not into the Gospels, into the disciples um, through uh, flashback or analepsis um, is the, I guess, literary technical term. so a bit of jargon there, but I was, I was just wondering if you could give us a flavor for how that process works. I thought that was a really interesting example. Yeah, and I stole that from Robert Karras. He has a great article on it, so I just want to not claim that as my own. Um, so these these um, narrative flashbacks or uh, that kind of thing um, really are about sequencing in the gospel. And so I, the first chapter after the introduction is... Um, Plot on the plotting of the Gospels, how narrative writers plot their Gospels, how they sequence it, what they do, how they arrange. Um, and I think this is such a fascinating area, especially because I grew up in a context where I just had to assume that the, that the Gospels were strictly and precisely chronological. And so I, I couldn't really ask the question of plotting because that sounds like the narrative writer, the Gospel writer actually does something with it. Well, a lovely side note about Greco-Roman bioi, is that they also are not always interested in chronology. Theme can trump chronology in, in their work. So if they want to emphasize a theme, they can arrange things slightly differently. We think, well, that's not a biography. Well, not a modern one, but it is an ancient one. So, um, so you can look at that plotting of a gospel. And I then, in the third chapter, take on Luke and say, let's look at Luke's plot line and what he does with it. Um, 
There are three passion predictions or predictions, predictions of Jesus' suffering and death in Luke, um, primary ones, uh, in the travel narrative, chapters 9 through 19. Um, and the first two are to dis- the disciples. It says just sort of generically disciples. The last one is to the 12. So um, we hear quite specifically the 12 male disciples. Um, and if we're used to just reading disciples as men, we won't be thinking there were women there, except that when Luke gets to chapter 24, the angels uh, remind the women who are at the tomb, remember how he told you in Galilee. And then we have a, pretty much a quotation from either the second or the third, or maybe a combination of those last two passion predictions. And it says, then they remembered his words. So we'll have to stop and say, ah, they were there. Uh, and this makes sense of, Ma- of Matthew, sorry, Luke 8, that's 1 through 3. No, that's not Matthew. <laughs> ah! In Luke 8, we hear about the 12 and some women who also were accompanying Jesus, Mary Magdalene and Joanna, as mentioned there, um, who were supporting them of their means. But they were also with him. That language is used of both groups, which is discipleship language. So we won't be surprised if, as Richard Bacham argues in chapter 10, when the 72 or the 70 go out, um, they go out in pairs and they could be both men and women. That's very possible, given what we see in chapter 8 and elsewhere. So then at the end of the story, uh, it might be that Luke now wants us to pay attention to the fact that women were also in that disciple group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're going to switch gears for a moment here and do a speed round. Um, so this is where I ask you questions and you have, you have to give off the cuff Okay. Responses. So, I can do off the um, and I, I've organized this according to categories. I've never done this before. So, um, I'm trying something completely new. So, the first one is the Minnesota quiz. Um, oh no, not a quiz. You didn't say quiz. You well, said speed it, it's, round. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It, it's uh, but I, I think you'll. Okay. We'll see how how Minnesotan like you are. I like to um, give quizzes. Okay. So here's a question: How many lakes are there in Minnesota? Ten thousand or so. Yeah, but it could be a little more precise. Uh, 12,000 and something? That's not bad. Okay, 11,842. Yeah, 12,000 and something. Yeah. Um, okay, second one. Long before it aired on Comedy Central and Sci-Fi Channel, this cult TV show premiered on Minneapolis public access television in the 19, late 1980s. Do you know what that show is? No idea. Mystery Science Theater 3000. Anyone, anyone a fan out there? Okay, all right. Boring. <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Okay, Minnesota, Minnesota question number three. Uh, this famous canned food is manufactured Spam. in Minnesota. Spam. You got it. Yeah. Did you, did you look at my question? No, no, no. Okay. I, I... Okay. Driven down that way before. You yeah. Know, so I, you drive I, by the spam plant. I actually think I tried to go to the museum one time yeah. and it was closed. That's a sad thing. Yeah. Okay. So the, the second category is called Rate That Book. Um, so I use the, I've done this for a couple times now. And um, so I use the random word generator on Google. You can just okay. use random word, it pulls up any word. Um, the word was on, O N. So uh, then I take that, plug it into Amazon.com under books. And um, and it the first book that comes up, I'd like you to give it a, a rating out of five stars. So the the book that came up, and and I want you to say how many stars do you give it and why? Um, so the book is H R H, which I assume means Her Royal Highness. Um, subtitle: So many thoughts on royal style. 
Um, and I'll just read you the little blurb from it. Veteran style journalist Elizabeth Holmes expands her uh, popular Instagram series, So Many Thoughts, into a nuanced look at the fashion and branding of the four most influential members of the royal British royal family. Queen Elizabeth II, Diana, Princess of Wales, uh, Catherine, the Duchess of Cambridge, and Meghan. Um, how, <laughs> how many stars do you give it and why? One, I would have expected to hear Kate Middleton in there somewhere. Okay, all right. Well, thank you. Um, thank you for that sober rating. Uh, second one, I, I, I did another, ran, I ran another random search. I think the word, oh, what's, what was the word that came up? Um, I think it was agenda. That was it. Um, so the title is Dark Agenda. Subtitle, The War to Destroy Christian America. How many stars do you give it? I have not read it. I just want to make that very clear. That doesn't mean you can't give it a rating. I know. I know. So what was the description? You didn't give me a description. No, I, I didn't have the description for that. Well, I think I can pass if there's no description. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, what do you think is the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. Oh. Okay. My favorite Matthew book is R.T. France's Matthew and then ICNT commentary series. I love that thing and it's, it's on my bedside sometimes when I'm reading and okay. best commentary out there. Excellent. Well, 2008, that's a good, a good recommendation. The, by the way, this question about the best book in biblical studies in the last 50 years is uh, causes more anxiety than any question I ever ask. I just um, went a whole different direction. I just thought I'm just going to ignore the question. It's like what Jesus does in Matthew 18. <laughs> When the disciples say, who is the greatest? And he says, unless you become like a child, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. That's, he didn't answer the question. Yeah, yeah, This is a way to show the question wasn't good in the first place. Right, yeah. Question evasion. That's what I just did. Um, what book has had the greatest significance on you? Any book. Yeah, not the Bible. Not the Bible. Yeah. Um, Pride and Prejudice. Okay. My daughter, Elizabeth Austin Brown, sits next to me, too. On my third date with my husband, Tim, we both figured out at the same time as we were talking that we loved Jane Austen. He had signed up for a Hemingway class, but he signed up too late. And so he had to take the next class down the pike, and it was Austen. And he walked into the room, and there were 48 women and two men, and he thought, this is great. <laughs> so the fact that we both fell in love kind of with Jane Austen and then over Jane Austen was significant. Oh, that's really meaningful. Um, Good. Uh, do you have a favorite novel of Jane Austen's then? So, well, Pride and Prejudice, though um, I like all seven, and I've really come to like Lady Susan, which is underrated. It's an epistolary novel. It's just very fascinating to think about that yeah. genre. Um, okay, so the next uh, category is in the speed round is called, Is oh, It... there's more of the speed round. <laughs> this is not very speedy. I'm just going to comment. Sometimes it slows down. Um, it's, it's called... Um, it's called Which is in the Bible? Oh, no. I, this one will make me more nervous. Yeah, and, and you have to tell me if it's in the Bible. So you get, uh, I'll read, you've got A B, A, B, and C are the choices here, okay? Okay, A, God helps those who help themselves. Um, B, Lord, teach us to pray. C, and Jesus said, whoever lives by the sword has a Second Amendment right to bear the sword. <laughs> B. 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 Lord, teach us to pray. Yes. Yeah, that's Luke. good. Okay, good. All right. Um, okay, the second... That was easier than I thought. <laughs> oh, it gets harder. Oh, no, 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 no. All right, the, thir the second set, A, B, and C again. 
Um, A, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, B, you shall not pass. Um, C, cleanliness is next to godliness. A. Yep. Okay. Matthew 5.3. Wow. Um, you even got a reference for that. Okay. The, the, the last one is, is just A and B. You have to pick which one it is. Okay. A, love on your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> B, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> B. Yeah, that's right. But on was in the first title of the earlier book. So, you know, it, it kind of gets in there. Um, uh, just a, a few last questions in the speed round. Um, this is this is called. Uh, well, actually, I have, a, have a, another one real quick. Lawn ornaments. A fan? No. 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 Okay. Okay. So, this, so this category is called songs, um, and you just they're titles, but they're questions. So, I'd like to hear your thoughts. So, what becomes of the brokenhearted? I don't have a good quip for that one. Let's see. Well, um, they often find love in the future. Okay. Good. What's love got to do with it? Everything. Okay. And how do you solve a problem like Maria? I think you need to be more tolerant than was shown in that movie. Okay, good. All right, so back to the um, discussion of the the book here. Thank the Lord. Yeah. (laughs) You you did well. So well done. Um, So you've done work on characterization of the disciples in the Gospels, and and they're, they're often portrayed as those of little faith, um, they're often terrified, greatly astonished at his teachings. So, um, so, so to have like the the disciples who you know presumably were supposed to follow in their footsteps as they followed in Jesus, um, you know, faith is a marker of what distinguishes a Christian, and and the disciples seem decidedly lacking and at many times in in faith. So, what does this characterization of the disciples teach us about discipleship and that that kind of journey of faith? So, this was my dissertation topic: um, understanding the disciples and their understanding in Matthew, really their characterization, um, primarily across sixteen through twenty, where they're with Jesus a whole lot. Um, and also how that functions. So um, little faith is attributed to the disciples in Matthew five times. Only, the word only occurs one other time in the Gospels in Luke in a parallel passage to, uh, to the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew. Um, and, and, and it can be defined variously, or, or the, um, the little faith can be described in various ways. It's not, not really trusting in the power of Jesus to do what Jesus has said and shown he can already, already shown he can do. And sometimes that they, they're not understanding. I mean, that they really aren't getting it. And this was a big argument um, that Matthew had this kind of divide between faith and understanding. And I argued in my dissertation that wasn't the case. And little faith shows in ch- chapter 16 particularly that they just aren't getting it. Um, the nice thing in Matthew is that Matthew nowhere says that these are the ones you are to emulate in terms of faith. The fact is they're called those of little faith, not the lacking faith ones like in Mark exactly, but the ones that have inadequate faith. Um, but Matthew gives us people who have plenty adequate faith. That's not the technical term, but that's kind of what we see in Matthew 8 and 9 when numbers of people come to Jesus for healing or they bring someone with them to have, have Jesus heal them and they have faith and it goes well for them or the person they bring. Jesus heals them. Uh, and then we have the sort of exceptional faith ones in Matthew and that's the centurion in chapter 8 and the Canaanite woman in chapter 15, both, by the way, Gentiles. And they're the ones that show great faith. So we have plenty of folks to emulate. I think Matthew wants us to emulate um, those with good faith, solid faith, or great faith. 
what's nice about the disciples, though, because, you know, we like them, right? It's not like we don't like the disciples in Matthew or any of the Gospels. We, we kind of identify with them. Uh, what Jesus does is continue to work with them, continue to show himself to them, continue to say, you know what? In the end, I'm going to work with you. I'm going, you know, so in the very end of Matthew, of course, um, they continue to waver in faith. They doubt. Um, yeah, that was an interesting point. Could, could you highlight that for a moment? Because it, I think it's easy to think, well, that's pre-resurrection. Yeah, right. And there is an argue, There's a number of, number of scholars, kings were included, that argue that in Matthew, the disciples improve. They get better. They finally understand. But you get to chapter 28, 17, and they both doubt and waver. Um, and that's the same coupling of language we heard in chapter 14. Peter wavers on the water and then they all worship, I'm saying not doubt and waver, they worship and waver. Um, and Peter has wavered and then they worship him. So it, it feels like there's really not much uh, traction <laughs> toward their understanding of faith. It's funny, I had to look that verse up because I, I had it ingrained in my mind that they, that improvement paradigm of, of yeah. they either improve or just they change post-resurrection, you know, and, and so that 2017 was interesting. Yeah, and you know, it can be translated... Um, they worshipped, but they doubted, or they worshipped, but some doubted. It's a little Greek construction, hoi de. It's an article plus a little teeny de, which is a conjunction. Um, and, and it also could be, some have translated, they worshipped, but others doubted. But there's no others in context um, in terms of the way the little grammatical thing. I have to tell you. So I had a narrative dissertation, and I wrote it for my thesis advisor, Arlen Haltgren, who was thoroughgoing, historical, critical, did source critical stuff, loved redaction critical stuff. Wonderful advisor. But when he would see, I had one footnote that was a text critical note, and I had two pages on hoide in Matthew 20, 17. <laughs> Oh my goodness, his Norwegian sensibility. I mean, just he, he got so excited, which for a Norwegian means that he wrote in pencil in teeny print on the side of my manuscript, nice, period, <laughs> period, period. That was his excitement. Lest you use an exclamation no, mark. No, there was no, yeah. It was in teeny, teeny print. Um, so, so, but I think, it, I think it's the same group. I think I argue that it's they worshiped and they doubted or but they doubted. Um, what I love at the end of Matthew, though, is that we're not up a crick without a paddle because Jesus promises his presence, right? All authority is given to me. Go take it. Go do mission. Let me know how it goes. He doesn't say that. You know this text way too well, right? He says, go make disciples and I will be with you. So we don't need the disciples to be people without, you know, with super, super duper faith. We have Jesus with them at the end of the story. We have Jesus with us. So I think that kind of comfort of Jesus with his followers, even as they left him and deserted him in his hour of need, I think helps the story kind of come to a nice, maybe not a neat bow, but a nice kind of conclusion uh, and helps us to hear that Jesus can work with us as well. So you have a, a section in your book on intertextuality and um, that, uh, you know, as looking at how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, which is of real interest to me. Um, so I'm wondering if for our listeners, you could outline some of the kind of key moments in this, in the discovery of intertextuality as a, a thoroughgoing feature of the New Testament and, and its understanding, its significance, and how it works. Absolutely. And, and maybe some of the key insights there. Mm -hmm. I'll be interested to hear, as yeah. an Old Testament person, what you... 
yeah. consider, uh, think of this. But um, Richard Hayes uh, did early work on, uh, and his, his was in the letters of Paul, but he looked at um, echoes of scripture in the letters of Paul. Um, certainly, uh, scholars recognized citations and allusions as is important. Um, many scholars early on uh, thought that the New Testament writers were using them f- somewhat out of context and a little bit loosely. Um, and that still is a common enough perspective today. Um, Richard Hayes came in and said, even in our in the echoes, there is often a whole story being evoked or a whole text. I mean, that, that backstory can be very important for what the author is doing. Um, and, and sometimes he didn't always attribute it to authorial intention, but the idea was that this whole text in the Old Testament could be a potentially applicable here. Um, and since that, uh, Richard's work, it's taken on uh, more and more of a storied focus, I'd say, in, in many writers. I do that myself in my own work on metalepsis, and, uh, which is that idea of taking an echo, uh, seeing an echo evoke a whole context. Um, I think it's helpful to pay attention to the fact that the early readers of Scripture of the New Testament were not readers, they were listeners. So they were hearing texts and they heard Old Testament texts and the way of connecting that with their own hearing is a bit different than reading. Uh, so I think they were picking up on storied connections potentially. Matthew, 20, Matthew 2, 15 is often the go-to for Matthew's proof texting of the Old Testament. Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, but that's about, in, in Hosea 11, right? One, um, that's about God calling Israel out of Egypt. Exactly. That's what Matthew actually wants us to hear. Because now, um, just like that son came out of Egypt, God is going to call this son out of Egypt. And so you get this Israel Christology being emphasized. And so often um, what gets emphasized, or uh, I think what the New Testament writers, gospel writers particularly are doing, is to um, look at who Jesus is and, and show those connections from the Old Testament. We, we used to call it in the old days typology. That's kind of a passe term. People don't like that term so much anymore. I, I think it's actually a pretty good term to keep on using. Um, figural exegesis um, is very similar to, in, in some ways, to typology. This idea that as the priest was this figure of mediation in the Old Testament, now Jesus in Hebrews, that priest. And so Israel son, Jesus, son, um, prophet, king, all those categories are ripe for use by the New Testament writers and, and idealization, the ideal king, the ideal prophet, the one who comes, um, that's certainly no less than a prophet, but is, is more than a prophet. So, um, I think those story connections can really help us hear beyond just little snippets of text. Yeah. And, and that resonates with what I, see going on already within the Old Testament. So not just across from old to new, but within, you know, the way that Exodus might evoke something from Genesis, it seems to assume the broader context of the thing it's echoing and not just that immediate word or that immediate text that it might be alluding to. So assuming a, a broader storied world seems to in, if that's happening in the New Testament, be a continuation of what's already happening in in the Old Testament. Um, so, um, you know, toward the end of your book, you have uh, a section on um, the on narrative approaches to the Gospels and theology. So, how how does a narrative approach to the Bible help us theologically? So, I've already mentioned, you know, this idea of 
moving, not not um, tossing aside propositional theology, but moving um, beyond it when we need to for narrative. So seeing um, theology is providing us with more than just statements about God, but um, a sort of a whole kind of storied way of understanding theology. So I gave you the example of Ma- uh, Matthew's wisdom um, Christology. In chapter nine, um, the, the last kind of big chapter, um, I take on um, the characterization of God in Mark. So how do we understand who God is in Mark's gospel? Um, presumably God speaks and acts, so can be treated from a narrative critical perspective like a character. Now, um, you know, I want to I want to assure you that I think there's reality there that God is real and exists outside of a book. <laughs> but but you know, how is Mark shaping that characterization? How does God act? So God splits the heavens in chapter one of Matthew, and and the Spirit comes. The schizo language that's uh, Matthew and Mark tend to they just have open. You know, they kind of make it a little less. Whoo, so because I don't know if they know what Mark is doing precisely, but of course, at the end of the gospel, the the temple curtain rips in two. It's schizo. It, it rips again. So God is doing this. That was an interesting this, connection. Yeah, God is doing this. And it's the only time schizo occurs in Mark. So it seems important. So God acts in, in interesting ways. Um, God speaks. Um, this is my son. You are my son. Sorry. This is my son. This is Matthew. So I have to quit. That's Matthew. Mark didn't do that. You are my son. Um, so God speaks there and at the transfiguration, but does not have a corresponding third act statement. God is silent at the end of Mark. And I take that from um, someone I went through my PhD program with, Philip Johnson, who did his dissertation on the characterization of God and Mark. Um, and it's it's not available in book form, but it's a wonderful piece of work. And I remember sitting in his defense, we could sit in on each other's defenses and listening to his reading of Mark. And it was just compelling. So I'm not going to give away all the answers for chapter nine. I just think you get the book and read it. It's really good. It's one of my favorite chapters is that set of eight and nine. It was very interesting. And, um, yeah, I, I won't I won't follow on with a spoiler then, but I, I think it is a is a very insightful chapter. Um, and and how would you say a narrative approach to the Gospels can help us pastorally? Um, yeah, well, um, as pastors and leaders who get to, well, I mean. I shouldn't say get to choose. Depending on how you decide what you're preaching on uh, next Sunday, you might have a lectionary. That's great. Um, a lot of people in our tradition, our Baptist tradition, just choose what they want to preach on. Um, and I try to challenge my students constantly to think bigger than they usually do. There's no holy thing about taking eight verses and preaching on it and saying, I'm going to stop there. What if you preached on four chapters? You could do it. You know that, right? You could preach Romans. I like to take Romans because people, I've heard this all my life. Well, our pastor's teaching on Romans and we are in chapter three and it's been five years. You know, I'm like, (laughs) what? What is so holy about that? What's so wonderful about that? Because we're not seeing a whole picture. I'm just saying, you're not seeing a whole picture. And even if you're not in a gospel, I think you should see the whole picture of Romans. You should see the whole sweep of it. And I tell my students, you need to understand Romans coherently. I'm going to give you a coherent reading of Romans as best as I can, and that's a hard one. I'm just... And your job is not to take my reading, it's to read it coherently and then help your people understand it coherently. This is about the whole thing. So you should be able to preach a sermon on Romans in one week. You should be able to preach a sermon on Romans in four weeks. You should be able to preach a sermon on Romans in 16 weeks. And please don't do three years. I just don't think it's helpful. 
I think you lose a whole lot more than you ever yeah, gain. I, I, um, I, know I get ch- excited about this one. I was at a church one time uh, visiting, I think it was in Florida, and the uh, pastor had been in Revelation for seven years. So I, I think there's something, I, I guess there's this idea that like that's taking it seriously, right? To, to yeah. just camp out and never move on yeah. um, or to move through, and I think plot it through slowly. And be- betrays a need to master the text rather than acknowledge sort of the mystery of, I can't nail down Romans. I don't know how to understand exactly 9 through 11 within the whole I'm trying and I'm reading Mark Nanos and all those people to help me understand that, but... But that, but that is the task, and it's an exciting task, and it's not so much one verse or five verses. And for me, um, I tell in the preface of the book um, that though I'd been trained in narrative criticism and started to read Gospels as whole vistas, the whole story, I still kept on assigning students eight verses <laughs> for assignments for an ex- exegetical paper because that's what we've all been trained to do as biblical scholars. And I, it's like I got really tired of that after a while. I thought, well, this is not helping them. I mean, it's not helping them to go preach a sermon on two chapters if I tell them do eight verses. They give me commentaries. I don't need another commentary. I have a hard time writing them myself. It's just, it's not an easy genre. Why are we doing this to students? So I, I assigned Matthew 21 through 22, which is about 80 to 90 verses in it. And I, I asked them some narrative questions and I said, do not write me a commentary. And a woman came up to me and handed it to me um, back in the days when we handed in papers in class. And she said, well, that was dizzying. And I said, then you did it right. Because you have this forest trees, forest trees look wide, you know, in, we got to go in all different angles. And that's the excitement of studying the Bible is not studying teeny little pieces, but large whole books. Well, uh, Janine, that's a great place to, to leave us. And I, I want to say thank you again for taking the time to speak with us this evening and to talk about your book. I encourage you to uh, check out Janine's book, which I see there are some copies of up here, uh, The Gospels as Stories. So Janine, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.